0: I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And this morning I'd like for us to begin with an honest assessment of human nature. How many of you have ever had someone do something to you and you are so mad at the very moment that they did it that you are already planning how you were going to get evil, even with them? Uh, we have one, two, three, or four, okay, you know what I'm talking about. And you may have thought right at that very moment, I'm going to kill you. Not that you would really kill them, but you'd like to really mess with them so they would learn very quickly that they shouldn't mess with you. You know, it's really strange when, you're, when I'm preparing some of these messages that things happen that illustrate the points that I'd like to make, and I really didn't think about them in this way. I was preparing this sermon, first started on it three or four weeks ago, and it was right after the uh, U.S. Open tennis tournament. And I don't know how many of you like to watch tennis, but I do. And, and I was, was watching the tournament. And there was a semifinal match this year between Serena Williams and Kim Clijsters. And Serena Williams was just about getting ready to serve the ball when her toe touched the service line. And if you don't like tennis, that may not mean anything to you at all. But what it meant was that she was faulted for that. And so her service was no good. And so when she was called for this foot fault... She became very angry about it. And you probably saw this on the news. But she took the tennis ball and she walked over to the line judge. And she said to her, I would like to take this ball and shove it down your throat and kill you. Now she said a other, some other few choice words that I can't repeat here. But with profanity-laced anger, she said to this line judge, I want to kill you. And all the line judge did was make a call in a tennis match. Now, the end result of that was that they gave her a penalty point, And then uh, after that, she actually lost the match without even pay- playing the last point. And that incident perfectly illustrates how that when we get angry, we want to retaliate. And we're not happy with just giving the same back in the same way that it was given to us. But we want to do even more. We want to give more back. And so we say, same to you and more of it. That is the way we think, and that's really just the basic chemistry of human nature. Well, in our study of the Sermon on the Mount today, Jesus addresses this, and he talks about that revengeful, spiteful, retaliatory attitude that really does not reflect the principles of Christ's kingdom. Kingdom people are supposed to act differently. We're to reflect the character of Christ, and we are to respond in a different way when those... Have harmed us. So we're going to see how Jesus deals with this subject, and we'll look at an, another illustration of the misinterpretation of God's law. This is Matthew chapter 5, so if you'd stand with me please, we're going to start at verse number 38. Matthew 5, verse number 38. Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for... The word and for the opportunity to preach from this. And I just ask you, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today and help us to understand better Jesus' teachings concerning how we are to treat one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're looking at the fifth of six examples that highlight the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Pharisees' abuse of the Mosaic law. When Jesus came preaching in Galilee, he faced a very difficult uphill battle of trying to undo all of the misinterpretations that the religious leaders had put on the Word of God. They had been teaching the Word of God for so long and so wrongly that it was unrecognizable in its original tent and in its meaning. The religious leaders had perverted nearly every standard of God's law. And in the place of God's standards, they had put their own standards, which was really a substandard. And they were teaching that whatever they were doing was okay, that they were good enough and they were righteous enough to live in God's kingdom. And so Jesus began to teach and he began to show them that not only were they not good enough for God... But they were truly perverted and they were hypocritical. And rather than being under the uh, commendation of God, they were actually under his condemnation. And so Jesus picked out six examples of how they had terribly twisted the law, and then he began to set the record straight. And so he starts out in all six of these examples stating what they taught, and then he corrects it with his own teachings. And his teaching is not just another interpretation. It's not an equal, valid viewpoint of what the Bible says. But what Jesus says is the truth. And it's the only truth that God will accept. Now we've looked at these different sayings. And this particular one is a little bit different from the others. Because Jesus takes an exact quotation, a direct statement from the Old Testament. They quoted it, and he quoted it exactly the same but they didn't really know the correct meaning of it. Now this is the statement. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Now that may be the most quoted statement in the Sermon on the Mount. And really it's been used to justify just a, just a multitude of erroneous teachings. Some have said that this verse teaches against capital punishment. What Jesus says is against that. and. Uh, they look at this and they say, well, this is a change from the Old Testament law. And so Jesus is saying that you can no longer do that. I'm going to change the harsh treatment of the Old Testament. There are some who teach pacifism from these statements of Jesus. And they say that it's wrong for you to go to war. It's wrong for you to defend our country when those oppress us. And then there are some who say that we should never seek any kind of justice. That civil laws are not to be binding on anyone. And so these are people who look for a utopia where the goodness and the kindness of people eventually went out if we simply teach people that they are to love each other. And we know that's an impossibility. The human heart is wicked and the natural inclination of our heart is always this, same to you and more of it. So this is a quotable statement. And I, I, I dare say that most people really don't understand The teaching here, when Jesus says, repeats, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, in one way or another, what we've done is to state the law that's been given in the Old Testament. This is the pattern that we've kind of established as we've looked at these different sayings. We state the law as it is in the Old Testament, then we talk about the pharisaical misinterpretation of that law, and then we talk about Jesus' correction of the misinterpretation. So I want to follow somewhat that same outline today. So first then, number one, is the equity of the law. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth." This is a statement that's made three times in the Old Testament. We find it in Exodus 21 verse 24, Leviticus 24 verse 20, and Deuteronomy 19 verse number 21. And if I could sum up the intent of this statement into one word, it would very simply be the word equity. God intends that there should be just punishment for every infraction of the law. Now, I I suppose that what we would need to do first is to understand why God has given us law. So let's take just a moment to talk about that. What does the law do? Why does God give us laws? Well, he gives us law, first of all, to restrain evil. And that really shouldn't be too hard for us to understand. The law sets the parameters for what you can do and what you can't do. Now, sometimes what people say is what we really need to do is just get rid of all these laws. I mean, there are just too many laws that we have to live by. And I have to admit, I was thinking the very same thing just a few weeks ago when I learned that uh, Brother Dalton could not take the young people to the retreat at Mount Gilead unless he'd been screened by a nurse. And that's because the law says that you can't spend five days with young people unless you can prove that you don't have the bubonic plague. And so I thought, well, that's just too many laws for us to live by. And so there are people say that we really don't need the laws. But it really comes down to this, that people who don't want laws are lawless people. Because the law is never going to hurt anybody who intends to do the right thing. The law protects people who want to do right from, uh, from those who would infringe upon what is right. And so, people who are law-abiding citizens are always protected by the law. You probably heard the saying, if, out, if we outlaw guns, that only outlaws will have guns. And that's actually a a statement with a double entendre. But it serves the purpose of telling us that the law is only going to affect negatively those who intend to do wrongly. So God gave us the law in order to restrain the evil that lurks in every person's heart. Now secondly, God gave us the law to be equitable so that there would be justice. The law respects justice. It restrains evil and it respects justice. And when the law is administered correctly, it makes sure that you get the same treatment that I get. I'm not favored above you, nor you above me. Some have stated it this way, justice is blind. And and that's really the foundation of all the laws that are in our country. The Supreme Court motto is equal justice under the law. And we symbolize that. And you've probably seen it as you've watched the Supreme Court, you've ever been to Washington, D.C. They symbolize that with a a statue of a woman with a blindfold on. And that's, the statue is called Justice is Blind. And that is exactly what the Old Testament law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, intends. It's nothing more and it's nothing less than that we are going to be treated equally by the law. So it's not a principle of retaliation. It simply says that punishment should fit the crime. There will be no excesses. The law does not permit revenge. It only gives us justice. And so we could state it in another way. If someone pokes you in the eye with a stick and puts out your eye, then you can't poke out his eye and cut off his ear. And if somebody breaks your leg, you can't break his leg and then beat the stuffing out of him too. And so the problem is that we get a picture in our minds when we read the Old Testament law and we see what it said here. We have a picture in our minds that in the Old Testament that what you had was a bunch of guys that formed a line and everybody went down the line and they got their eyes poked out and they got their teeth knocked out. Well, it's the wrong idea. And we think perhaps there was an official eye poker and there was a, an official tooth knocker. But that's, that's the wrong picture. It's not to make sure that we that we have people or, or everybody who has one eye has a counterpart with only one eye. It simply means that you can't ask for more than you've been wronged. You can't turn justice into retaliation. The punishment has to fit the crime. There's equity under the law, and that's the sum total of what the Old Testament law is about. It's not harsh. There's nothing demeaning about this. The Old Testament is not gruesome. And people who don't understand this are just like the Pharisees. They have a misinterpretation of what God intended in the Old Testament law. Now, interestingly, this very same law was written in the Hammurabi Code that predated Mosaic law. And it's what we call lex talionis. And it simply means equal equity or equity under the law. So that brings us then to what the Pharisees were saying about this. What is it that they did to abuse Old Testament law? And so we want to look, secondly, at the enforcement of the law. How did the Pharisees enforce this Old Testament law? Well, they were really lovers of literal interpretations. And so they were eye pokers and they were teeth knockers. Now, I think about the story in John chapter 9, and the blind man that was healed by Jesus, and the Jews questioned him and they wanted to know, was he really blind from birth? And so they asked his parents. They called them in. They said, how long has he been blind? Was he really blind from his birth? You know, I never thought about this until I was looking at Matthew chapter 5. Maybe they asked that question because they wanted to know, well, did he commit some sort of sin? Did somebody poke his eyes out because they were trying to get even with him? Or was he born this way? I don't know if that's what they had in their mind. You can call that a Smith interpretation if you like. That's just one of the things I think about. But the Pharisees loved to do this. They loved to take the law literally. And they put the meaning to this that you you have the right to take justice into your own hands. And you have the right to make sure that you get your due. And so what they did then, they said, according to the law, you should pursue your personal rights. This is what you have the right to do. They took it all personally. Now if you go back to the Old Testament, what you will not find is vigilante justice. Nobody is given the right to go and hunt down offenders and take the law in their own hands, and much less would they be allowed to get revenge by going beyond what fit the crime. So the context for Exodus 2124, Leviticus 2420 and Deuteronomy 1921 is actually what happens in a court of law. Now we understand this a little bit better if we read it from Deuteronomy chapter 19. So I want you to turn there for just a moment. And we're going to look at this law in its context. Now there are, are several laws that are mentioned in this 19th chapter. Uh, it talks about an eye for an eye. And, and it refers to many different crimes. And, and it, it applies to many different crimes. But here specifically it's talking about being a lying witness. Now, I want you to notice who makes the judgment. Look at verse number 16. Deuteronomy 19, verse number 16. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness... And have testified falsely against his brother. Then shall ye do unto him as he hath thought to have it done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear. And shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity. But life shall go for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. And so do you see this? Verse number 17 says, the priests and the judges. Verse number 18, the judges shall make diligent diligent inquisition. So this is not talking about an individual taking justice into his own hands. This is what a court of law is for. The court decides the punishment. And what the Old Testament law intended to do was to instruct judges to treat people and act fairly according to the law. But the Pharisees twisted all of that. And so what they did was to go looking for their revenge. They, they began to pursue their personal rights. If you hurt me, then I'm coming after you. And you better watch out because you don't know exactly what I'm going to do to you. And the sad thing about this is we still get it wrong and we still practice it wrongly today. A few weeks ago, uh, we went down to San Diego to see my daughter Clarissa. And we took uh, Lauren and Aiden with us. Now, for those of you who don't know, Aiden is the best looking baby in the nursery. But um, it's really amazing. We we took uh, Aiden down there with us, and uh, it's really amazing to watch little children and see human nature in its purest form. You don't teach little kids what to do, they just understand personal rights, and, 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 and you don't have to tell them what to do. So, Clarice and Lauren, of course, both have uh, two little toddlers. They're just two days apart. And so you watch them play and here you have these two little 15-month-old toddlers and one grabs a toy from the other one and the wrong one starts to cry or the one who's wronged, I should say, starts to cry and as soon as the other one turns his back, what does that one do? He takes a toy that's bigger and heavier and he bops him right on top of the head with it. So he doesn't go to the judge. He doesn't go to mommy and say, I need the toy back. He just takes matters into his own hands. And so what he's in, he's in eye-poking mode. And you know what happens? We do the very same thing. We ought to know better. We're grown up. We ought to know better than this, but we're always walking around in eye-poking and teeth-knocking mode. You just try me, and you see what you're going to get. So we've got this thing about rights, and we say, well, you better not step on my rights. And that's what the Pharisees did. They took the law into their own hands, and they said, I have these rights uh, this is the way it's going to be and I'll go to the ends of the earth to protect my rights. So you just better watch out if you ever cross me. But it gets even worse than that because secondly, their enforcement was about pleasure from personal revenge. Now I'm not going to ask you to answer this out loud, but what is it that undergirds all of the Old Testament law? I mean, what is that four-letter word that undergirds all of the law? Now you remember that we talked about how the law is divided into two parts. The first four commandments are about love for God. And the next six are about love for our fellow man. And so the ten commandments are actually underwritten by love. The last six commandments tell us how we ought to treat one another. But the huge, glaring, missing component in the pharisaical teachings was the very main thing. It was love. And so they lived in a world of disjointed, self-satisfying relationships. And their pleasure wasn't from loving people. It wasn't from gentleness and kindness and how to treat one another right. It was all about inflicting pain. They enjoyed the pain and the misery that they could put other people through because that's what made them feel good. I'll get my revenge, I'll get my justice, so cross me and see how good you can make me feel. And this is what it was all about. This is what happened when Jesus was talking about hatred. And he said that's like murder. When he talked about abusing sex. And he said lustful hearts are the same as adultery. It's what divorce is all about. It's what lying is all about. It's all about personal satisfaction. And that's their interpretation of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's huge promotion of self. And it's all about personal rights and the pleasure of getting revenge. And so that was sick. It was all messed up. It was the antithesis of what the Mosaic law and what God meant. So Jesus taught it a different way. There's a misinterpretation and Jesus has to set all of this straight. There's a different way that people in his kingdom live. And so we find in verses 39 through 42, Jesus' teachings, which are the ethics of the kingdom. Remember, Jesus started out in the very beginning of the sermon with the Beatitudes. And there he was speaking about the ethics of the kingdom. God's people are different. They're not self-promoters. They're poor in spirit. They mourn over sin. They mourn over mistreatment. They're humble and they, they're meek. They don't seek revenge and they're merciful. And so in these next verses, Jesus gives four scenarios demonstrating... The selfless attitude of people in his kingdom. I want to give these to you rather quickly, but let me set this up this way. This is the correction of Pharisaical misinterpretation. This is the way he corrects an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the way that they stated it. And what he tells us, or what he really shows us, is that this is a method prescribed for civil law. It's just and equitable, it's absolutely to be followed. And it's against Scripture not to follow it. But it's never to be a prescribed method for personal relationships. It's never to be used and never was intended to be used between you and me. And so when it comes to civil law, we want this, we want this law to be upheld exactly as it is. Because we never want to be gracious with the law. We want to be equitable. And if we're not equitable and we decide that we're going to be gracious with law, then one of two things happens. If we're gracious with the law and not equitable, murderers get off with a $500 fine. Child molesters get jobs as kindergarten teachers. And the court says to a bank robber, well, do you promise that you're never going to do this again? And we just let them off. That's what happens when the law is gracious instead of being equitable. And if the law is inequitable, speed violators get five years at San Quentin in which case I'm never getting out. You can come and visit me there. In my neighborhood, you you can't do things like leave the trash bin out on the street for more than one day. And an equitable law would say, well, they can come and burn your house down for that. So we need equitable laws. But what we don't want to do is to confuse the court with personal relationships. An eye for an eye is for the courts. It's not for your home, it's not for work, and it's not for your neighborhood. A few weeks ago, Nathan was on his way to his room, and he was carrying a, a full glass of Coke in his hand. I don't know, he tripped over something, and he dropped the Coke on the floor, on the carpet, splattered it all over the walls in the house. And you know what I did? I went to the refrigerator, and I got a gallon of orange juice, and I went outside to his car, and I poured orange juice all over the seats of his car. You know, you know I didn't do that. You look at me, I was like, You know that I didn't do that because an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not a principle for personal relationships. Now, let's look quickly at the examples that Jesus gives. I mean, this is just practical Christian kingdom teaching. The first is, what to do about your cheek. Verse 39, but I say unto you, now there's Jesus' correction. You've heard it been said, but here comes my teaching that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this is one of the most misused teachings of Scripture. I mentioned just a moment ago that people take the Sermon on the Mount and they twist it to teach pacifism. They use it to teach against capital punishment, all sorts of things. Some people even go so far as to say that if someone breaks into your house and they threaten your wife and your children... That you can't do anything about that. You can't defend them and you can't defend you. And so they just make crazy applications of what Jesus says. So what does he mean when he says, Well, if you get smacked on one cheek, offer the other two. Well, he means that you take the second slap and then you go for it. You take it once, you take it twice, and then you go, you beat the stuffings out of that guy. That's not what he means and you know it. What he means is he's giving us a lesson about personal dignity. But one of the worst teachings that has ever hit this planet is this thing about self-esteem. We have trumped up self-esteem to the place that we think so highly of ourselves that we are going to defend ourselves at all cost. Jesus did not teach self-worth in that way. He and the apostles taught that we can expect nothing other than mistreatment. He said that you are going to be despised. He said you will be hated for my sake. But he never said stand up for yourself and don't take it. He said just the opposite. And that's what turning the cheek is about. You have to suffer indignity and hatred and cursing without lashing back. And so what does that mean? It means you can't stand up for your rights. You can't demand your rights as a Christian. But that goes against everything we've ever been taught as Americans, doesn't it? What do we do? That's what we want to do. We stand up for our rights. We've been taught that. Even mama says, don't you take that off of your teacher. Don't you let those kids say bad things about you. And so we grow up with this teaching. When someone comes along and says, take it, bear it, suffer it. We don't like that. It goes against our grain. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount is not for everybody. This is for people who've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is for the people of God. Only Christians can live like this. Because this is the example of the Savior. He was reviled, he was beaten, he was stricken. The scripture says that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and yet he opened not his mouth. Paul gives us excellent commentary on the subject in Romans chapter 12. The apostles did a lot of expounding on Jesus' teachings. And we read this a moment ago. Romans 12, verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what turning the other cheek is about. It's about being demeaned. It's about suffering personal indignity. Now, did you know as a Christian that one day that you are going to be exalted to sit with God in heaven? But until then, you have to bear these things. You don't need an eye for an eye. And so if you ever think that you want to be vengeful, that you want to get your revenge, you need to think about what the Lord said. He said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So you will leave that up to him. Secondly, Jesus teaches about what to do about your cloak. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Now this is really another tough one. And remember that the essential underlying premise of the whole section is what we're supposed to do about retaliation and revenge. It's teaching about that. And so here is a case where someone takes you to the court of law and they sue you to take something from you. And I suppose that one of the scariest things at least to me is is about being sued. I mean I have a fear of being sued. And I remember one time there was a sheriff that, that showed up my door and he said I have a summons for you and my heart dropped down to my feet because I thought that I was being sued. But I opened it up and it turned out that it was just a, a summons to appear as a witness in someone else's court case. But wouldn't you get angry about that if someone sues you? I think that you would. And what Jesus says, that you can't be vengeful about that. You have to show a different demeanor. Now, this, this particular example and the one that comes after it is kind of interesting, I think. Because what, what, what is all this talk about a coat and a cloak? Well, this is sort of like, what do you do when you're down to your very last thing? The very last thing that you have. And this is really about being rightfully sued. What if someone sues you and they're right about this, but you don't have anything to pay, for, pay it with? Now, back in those days, they had two garments that they wore. They had a coat and they had a cloak. The coat is, coat is the outer garment and the cloak is the inner garment. So what do you do if they sue you and you, they take away your coat? Well, the only thing you have left is the cloak. And if they take away your cloak, you're down to your skivvy. So then what are you going to do? Well, the scriptures are teaching us that you don't retaliate against this. You don't get mad about this. Jesus says that you offer the cloak also. And you do this because you want to show that you want to do absolutely everything that you can to make things right. You see, the testimony of a Christian is that we are to live above and beyond. We're supposed to be above and beyond in behavior. Sometimes people will take advantage of you. They'll speak evil of you. They'll make accusations against you. But what you have to do is make sure, make sure that they have to search long and hard to make anything stick against you. Thirdly, what do you do about being compelled? Verse number 41, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. This is teaching about your personal time. And what it's teaching is that your time is surrendered to another. And so when people need your time, you have to take away from your plans in order to help others. And if someone asks you to do something, Jesus says, don't just do that, you do more for them. Now, I said that the, the reference here, I think, is an interesting one. So let me read to you a comment from Albert Barnes concerning the word compel. Barnes writes this. He says, the word translated shall compel is of Persian origin. Post offices were then unknown. In order that the royal commands might be delivered with safety and dispatch in different parts of the empire, Cyrus, and that's, the head of the, the emperor of the, of the Persian Empire, Cyrus stationed horsemen at proper intervals on, the, on all the great public highways. One, one of those delivered the message to another, and intelligence was thus rapidly and safely communicated. And that's sort of like the Pony Express that we're familiar with. The heralds were permitted to compel any person or depress any horse, boat, ship, or other vehicle that they might need for the quick, quick transmission of the king's commandments. Now what that means is that a person had to drop whatever they were doing. And they had to give up their time to do someone else's business. This is what happened when Simon the Serene was compelled to carry Jesus' cross. He was standing by, perhaps nearby. And, and when Jesus fell and could not carry the cross. When he couldn't take it all the way to Golgotha. This man, Simon the Cyrene, was compelled to carry his cross for him. He had to take it the rest of the way. This was also a a common occurrence for a Roman soldier to compel a Jew to carry his gear. And that's because the law said that a conscripted person must carry the load for up to a mile. And so these Roman soldiers that were carrying these heavy packs... They were too heavy for them to carry very far. And so what they could do, the law said, that they could take one of the Jews or one of the people that was there and they could say, you have to carry my pack for me. But what they couldn't do was make them carry it for more than a mile. They would carry it one mile and then someone else had to pick it up and carry it the next mile. But Jesus says, when that happens to you, you cheerfully go the next mile too. Now do you see how that speaks well of Christians? Roman soldiers went all over the Roman Empire. And they might say something like this, have you ever met a Christian? They are really weird. You ask them to carry your pack, and they say, well, could I take it another mile for you? Could I carry it a little bit further? So they are so weird because they like to carry these packs. They love to help people out. They'll even go two miles, and you don't even ask them to do it. They don't grumble and complain at all. And so this kind of information would travel everywhere throughout the Roman Empire, and it would speak well of the name of Christ. How do we distill that, bring it down to you and me today? Let me give you an example. What, what if someone in the church calls you and asks you to help them move? Anybody ever experienced that in this church? I mean, we've got a moving company here, I think. But uh, when someone calls you and asks you to help them move, what do you do? You take away from your time. You surrender your time to go help them. You see, this is all about the master's business. Surrendering your time to help someone else because your time belongs to someone else. It belongs to the Lord. And helping other people is the business of God. Now finally then, and I know this speaks to everyone, what to do about charity. Verse 42, Give to him that asketh thee, And from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. So Jesus' teaching in this section, the final teaching, has to do with your personal possessions. Do you have a right to your own money? Does your bank account belong to you? Now, one of the things that the Pharisees should have been thinking about when they were going through this whole matter of personal rights and what belongs to me and... All about their selfishness. There's something else that they should have read in the law. In Deuteronomy 8 verse 18 it says. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. For it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Everything that you have comes from God. But is there anything that we're more selfish about than our stuff? I work for this. This is mine. I made the money to buy this. And I'm not going to share it with anybody. I'm keeping it all for me. The question is, who gave you your health and who gave you your strength to make money? And what do you do with the money that you make? You see, it's not all about you. Your wealth that you make, if you are a Christian, is for the kingdom of God. Now, God allows you to have your necessities, but beyond that, you have no rights at all. It all belongs to Him. And I think about this when we think about tough economic times. And, and we're living in this now. And there are many Christians who, who are thinking right now, well, I have to save all this money up. I have to keep it for myself. I don't know how long the economy is going to be down. I don't know how bad it's going to get. So I've got to save up my money to make sure that I have enough. I'm going to hold on to it. And so you have Christians that begin to cut down on what they give. And I don't know, maybe some of you get $3,000, 4000 th- four 5000 $6,000 a month, and some even more than that. And what do you do? Some of you drop... $50 into the offering plate, and you say, well, I've done my duty. I've done what's required of me. Now, I definitely believe that the Bible teaches tithing. But we give God this little pittance, and we say, well, that, that's good enough, and we'll just take the money, and we'll spend the rest of it on ourselves. It really shouldn't be too hard for us to figure out what the tithe means. It simply means 10%. Everything that you make... Ten percent of that belongs to God. But I also believe that tithing is a starting place for Christians. You start with that, and then you give even more because your giving goes into the kingdom of God. And this is simply what kingdom people do. When people need help, we help them. Our pharisaical materialistic society says, well, it's all mine. And so we have all kinds of excuses why we can't give. And Jesus addresses this as well with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15. They did the very same thing. So here it is then. This is the right teaching from Jesus. And his example in a nutshell is this. That being a kingdom citizen is not about you. You are the last on the list. And the character of Christ is that you can't assert your rights. It's not about being selfish and demanding so that you get your due. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not about our personal relationships in Christ's kingdom. Now the whole point here is that we are different people. We've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus did was to give up all of his rights in order to come to this earth to give his life as a sacrifice for sin. The Bible says that he became a servant of men. And everything that Jesus did was according to those two divisions of God's holy law. In love... He honored his heavenly father by submitting to him. And so that was first, on the first part, to love God. That's what the first part of the commandments are about. He obeyed the second part, and that is to love one another. And he did that by giving his life for our sins. Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. So what we're speaking here is the ethics of Christ's kingdom. And you're never going to live this way unless you've received Christ as your Savior. So you don't go around poking out eyes and you don't go around knocking out teeth. That's not the way Christ or we do things. And so, same to you and more of it. That should only be used in this situation. And that is when someone says to you, God bless you. Then you can say, same to you and more of it. That's the ethics of Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we see from this, Lord, how far we fall short of being what you want us to be. We have no hope in ourselves. We can't live righteous lives. It takes your power. It takes your abilities that have been conferred upon us. And even at the very best in this human nature, we'll never be good enough to see you. So we thank you for Jesus Christ who came to give his life that his righteousness might be given to us by faith. So we thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to remember that sacrifice. Remember what Christ has done in giving his life. And that we also might be helpful to others. No personal revenge, no pleasure from it, but only the pleasure of doing as you would have us to do to esteem others better than ourselves. We thank you, Lord, for this time today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.